So as I said in, in my first lecture, the idea that there are irreducibly normative truths about reasons for action, which we can discover by thinking carefully about reasons in the usual way, has been thought to be the subject of three kinds of objections, metaphysical, epistemological, and motivational, or as I would prefer to say, practical. Metaphysical objections claim that a belief in irreducibly normative truths would commit us to facts or entities that would be metaphysically odd, incompatible, it is sometimes said, with a scientific view of the world. Epistemological objections maintain that if there were such truths, we would have no way of discovering them. Practical objections maintain that if conclusions about what we have reason to do were simply beliefs in a kind of fact, they could not have the practical significance that beliefs, that judgments about reasons are commonly supposed to have. Uh, and this is often put by saying that beliefs alone cannot motivate an agent to act. I think it's better put as the claim that beliefs cannot explain action or make action rational or irrational in the way that accepting conclusions about reasons is normally thought to do. I'll concentrate this in this lecture on uh, metaphysical objections. I don't believe that irreducibly normative truths have untenable uh, ontological or metaphysical implications. I've always held this view, or at least for a very long, a long time. Uh, the view might be defended uh, by taking the stance that normative judgments have uh, a, a kind of non-ontological, uh, or, or a kind of special non-ontological character. They have a kind of get-out-of-ontology-free card uh, that goes with them. Uh, this would seem to be a kind of, sort of special pleading, absent some further justification. So the alternative is to, is, to, is to come at things from the metaphysical or ontological side and explain why uh, it doesn't, so to speak, reach over and uh, uh, cloud or call into question the kind of things that we're doing uh, when we're making normative claims. And that's, in a way, what I'm going to do. That's certainly what I'm going to do in the first bit of this, of this lecture. But such, you know, I'd say that, that more aggressive line uh, uh, against uh, the ontological objections uh, might seem, well, as I said, aggressive. Uh, it, it might seem to involve a kind of wholesale um, deflationism about metaphysical or ontological uh, claims that they aren't serious or deep or something, which I don't believe. So what I'm, what I'm proposing, I hope, will be seen, uh, at least as in, it, it is intended in a more ironic, uh, that is to say, peacemaking spirit. Uh, I, I want to say that uh, metaphysical and ontological claims are, are indeed deep and serious, but not all of them, and not all the things that commonly go into that head. So I want to suggest a, a mutual withdrawal to, uh, to secure boundaries uh, between the normative on the one hand uh, and the ontological or metaphysical uh, on the other. Um, to explain this position, I have to uh, begin with some general remarks about ontology, uh, thereby diving into this, uh, what's now the, a burgeoning field, I understand, of meta-ontology. I do this with some trepidation, since although I've been long interested in these questions, indeed interested in them since the time I was in Oxford that I discussed at the beginning of last lecture, um, I've never done it in a professional capacity, so to speak, and I know that the room is well stocked with uh, card-carrying professional uh, metaphysicians and probably card-carrying meta-ontologists as well, and I hope that, I'm sure that they will probably call my attention in the discussion to the fact that the view I'm proposing was already patented by someone else or, or perhaps uh, was already refuted uh, because of its uh, glaring, uh, glaring errors in logic or something else. So that way I will learn something. So I look forward to, to learning something about this. So here, here's the view. So it would be helpful to begin, as one does in this subject, with a few remarks about Quine. In what there, in, on what there is, Quine proposed that we understand what he called our ontological commitments in the following way. The ontological commitments of a set of statements are determined by first translating these statements into the language of first-order logic, and then determining what things there must be in the universe of discourse of a model in which all these statements are true. These things that must be included are what we are ontologically committed to in accepting these statements, according to Quine's doctrine. What he later called ontological relativity arises from the fact that there will be more than one way of translating any set of statements into what he called regimented form, uh, and these different translations may yield different ontological commitments, and models for them can be constructed in different ways. So far, Quine's view says nothing about what our ontology should be. 
uh, it accomplishes the first aim mentioned on the first page of On What There Is, of explaining uh, why it's not paradoxical to say that Pegasus doesn't exist. As how, how can we talk about things that don't exist, in particular saying that they don't exist, without somehow um, asserting that they do exist or referring to them as if they did exist in this, this uh, way of looking at, at questions of ontology and existence uh, solves that little, that little puzzle. But so far, it doesn't say anything about how we should be concerned with ontology more broadly. It's quite compatible with what might be called a thoroughly permissive first-order view, according to which we should decide what sentences to accept by applying the criteria appropriate to the relevant first-order disciplines, empirical science, mathematics, and so on, perhaps including, as I would say, or Quine probably would not, our best moral and practical thinking as well. And our ontology would then simply be the set of ontological commitments that these sentences have as determined by Quine's method. But Quine's method is equally compatible with various more restrictive views, according to which we should, for example, avoid ontological commitment to anything other than physical objects, or should limit our ontology as much as possible, and should reject statements that would have ontological commitments that violate these strictures, even if they are attractive on first-order grounds. In his early years, Quine seems to have held, or at least flirted with, some restrictive views of this kind. In his famous paper with Nelson Goodman, they reject ontological commitment to abstract entities in, in, as I recall, the very first sentence. And more generally, Quine seems to have favored, at various points in his career, a kind of ontological minimalism, a taste for desert landscapes, as he sometimes uh, referred to. But by the middle 1960s, uh, when I took a course uh, based on Quine's book Set Theory and Its Logic, these views had moderated. He still showed some preference for limiting one's ontology, other things being equal. But he was willing to trade off this concern against such concerns as the ease and shortness of the proofs. The willingness to accept trade-offs of this kind doesn't seem, to me at least, to be consistent with a very serious doctrine of ontological minimalism or with the rejection of abstract objects on ontological grounds as unacceptable. Whatever Quine's view may have been, I myself will try to make plausible something like what I just called a permissive first-order view with a few tweaks and twists to try to make it more plausible. According to this view, we should decide which statements to accept on the basis of our best first-order reasoning appropriate to those statements. That is to say, forms of reasoning such as scientific reasoning, moral reasoning, practical reasoning, mathematical reasoning, and so on. These first-order domains are not always autonomous. If the claims of one domain conflict with those of another, then these claims need to be reconciled somehow, and some of them will probably have to be given up. For example, we might have a first-order theory of witches and spirits. That is, we might have established criteria for deciding whether someone is or is not a witch and whether or not a ghost is present in the room. But the conclusions of these theories would entail claims about events in the physical world and their causes. Um, and these claims, sorry, these claims would therefore conflict with those of physics and other empirical sciences, and as a result of these conflicts, these theories and the idea that there are witches and ghosts should be rejected. But this rejection is based entirely on what I'm calling first-order grounds, in this case, scientific grounds. What the view I'm describing excludes so far are general ontological constraints, such as the ones I mentioned in discussing Quine, that is, constraints such as a general preference for ontological economy uh, or a, a general stricture against commitment to abstract objects. By general, in this sentence, I mean applying across all, kind, all domains of discourse, scientific or common sense discussions of the physical world, mathematical, uh, moral, practical, uh, and so on. There may be good reasons for preferring simpler or more economical theories to more complicated ones. For example, it may be good scientific practice to prefer simpler physical theories. But when there are such reasons, they arise, on the view I'm suggesting, as in the case I just mentioned, within some particular first-order domain. The rationales for these strictures and what counts as, for example, simplicity in the relevant sense will be specific to them. It's sometimes said that the thesis that there are moral facts or irreducibly normative truths is itself incompatible with a scientific view of the world. And so it would involve a conflict of the kind I've just mentioned. But I see no reason to believe that this is the case. Science is a way of understanding the physical world, the world of space and time, physical objects, and causal relations. 
Belief in irreducibly normative truths would be inconsistent with science if, like beliefs in witches and spirits, it committed one to claims about physical objects and causal relations which science denies. But belief in normative truths has no such implications. It may seem that the role of normative beliefs in motivating action and the possibility of our coming to know normative truths may involve claims about causal interaction. I believe this is not so in either case, but that's something I will have to explain in later lectures dealing with epistemological and practical questions. It's important here to distinguish between the universe, which science studies, and the logical idea of a universe of discourse, which was the, played a prominent role in Quine's ontological commitment. Science is a way of understanding the universe, the natural world. Its conclusions represent our best understanding of what that world contains and what happens in it. A universe of discourse is a merely formal construction. It's a way of representing all those things that are presupposed by some set of statements about the natural world or about anything else. Accepting science as a way of understanding the natural world entails rejecting claims about this world that are incompatible with science, such as claims about witches and spirits. But accepting science doesn't mean that this world and the things in it are the only things we can refer to and talk about sensibly. It doesn't entail any limitation on our universe of discourse. This view may seem to entail that some things that must be counted as part of our universe of discourse exist in a different sense than other elements in that universe, such as tables, chairs, mountains, and electrons. And this may seem to run contrary to the doctrine, sometimes attributed to Quine, that existence is univocal. According to the view I'm proposing, existence is univocal in one important sense. That is to say, what it captures, what it expresses, is captured by the existential quantifier and the logical rules governing its use. But what is required to justify any existential claim and what follows from such a claim varies, upon, uh, varies with the kind of thing that is claimed to exist. That is, it depends upon what comes after the quantifier. The claim that mountains exist is licensed by and licenses other claims about the physical world. The claim that there exists a number or a set of a certain kind is licensed by and licenses certain other mathematical claims. The claim that a right exists is licensed by and licenses certain other moral claims. And in each case, I would say, that's all there is to it. One objection to the view I'm taking might be that it's too permissive. According to this view, it might be said, we could adopt some way of talking which allowed for existential generalization, and as long as this, over some sort, let's say, as, and as long as this way of talking was well-defined, internally coherent, and did not have any presuppositions or implications that conflict with those of other domains, such as science, we would be committed to the view that the things quantified over in this way of talking exist. So I might say a permissive Fergainism. These things would be among our ontological commitments, that is to say, part of our universe of discourse. But the fact that these things, as, as, as they are discussed in this domain, as I'm describing it, are, are completely insulated from other domains, as mentioned in the, in, the, in the qualification in the sentence I just read, may ensure that talk of the items in question is perfectly pointless. Can we take seriously an idea of existence that comes so cheaply? My answer first is that the question to be asked about enti the entities in question in this example is not whether they really exist, but whether we have any reason to talk about them. If we do, then there's reason to count them among our, our ontological commitments and part of our purely formal universe of discourse if we are interested in that. And given the assumption of independence that I mentioned, there's no reason not to do this. There is, given this assumption of independence, no further question, except the question of who cares. It might be said that on this view, ontological commitments are not ontological in a serious sense. Perhaps this is correct, and correct as a consequence of accepting the idea that the univocal meaning of exists is captured entirely by the logic of the, of the existential quantifier. What more serious sense of ontology is there? In my view, there, there, there is a more serious sense. Uh, even though it's also true that the relevant criteria of existence arise from I'm going to emphasize that phrase, arise from the particular first-order domains that we have reason to take seriously. Existence in the natural world described by science, mathematical existence, and so on. 
But this claim, this claim of first-order dependence, doesn't mean that, according to my view, all meaningful theoretical questions are internal to these domains in the sense suggested, for example, by Carnap. Although my view may sound quite a lot, and indeed was to some degree influenced years ago uh, by Carnap's views set forth in his famous paper, uh, Empiricism, Semantics, and Ontology, and famously criticized by Quine. So it may help to clarify what I'm saying if I explain how my account is like Carnap's, but also how it differs from his, as I understand his. Carnap distinguished between questions of existence that were internal to a framework, as he called it, such as mathematics or physics, and questions that were external to such frameworks. For example, the question of whether there exist numbers of a certain kind, such as twin primes or whole numbers that are solutions to a particular equation, as I mentioned earlier, is an internal mathematical question, whereas the question whether numbers really exist is an external question if it's not settled by answering the, by doing the mathematical calculation. External questions understood as questions of fact about the existence of entities were, according to Carnap, pseudo-questions. The only genuine questions that were external to a framework, he thought, were practical questions about whether or not to adopt such a framework. Quine objected that the distinction Carnap sought to draw between internal and external questions was really an instance of the analytic-synthetic distinction, or depended on it. It's not only external questions that involve the choice of a convenient conceptual scheme or framework for science, according to Quine. Such, such choices are at issue, he said, in the consideration of any scientific hypothesis. Carnap spoke of frameworks. I've been speaking more vaguely of first-order domains or practices, such as mathematics, science, and moral and practical reasoning. The idea of a domain here is somewhat vague. My understanding of it is driven simply by the examples I've given. A domain, as I understand it, is determined by a set of concepts that it deals with, such as number, physical object, or morally right action, a certain number of things that are taken to be settled truths that employ this concept, and some accepted procedures for settling questions employing these concepts. What these procedures are is often open to dispute and probably incomplete. In contrast to Carnap, I don't take these procedures to be determined by linguistic rules for the use of the terms in question. People can use terms such as number, set, or wrongness without misuse of language, even though they disagree about what the best ways of determining uh, facts about these things are and which forms of reasoning about them are valid. In discussing the possibility of an isolated domain, one that had no implications for other domains, I said that the only external questions about the entities it referred to would not be whether they really exist, but whether we have any reason to talk about them. This sounds very much like Carnap, and I do agree with him that in some cases, the only external questions may be practical ones. But this is not always so. Meaningful external questions about a domain, in my view, are questions about whether the claims and presuppositions of that domain are in fact fulfilled. Most commonly, these are questions about whether the procedures internal to that domain can actually deliver conclusions that have the significance for us that those claims uh, assert or presuppose. So, for example, the conclusion that someone is a witch, as I said, or that there is a spirit in the room, have, have, in order for them to have the significance they claim, it has to be the case that they have implications for what happens in the physical world and what causes what. So there's an external question about whether the methods that are claimed in, in witch theory or spirit layer or whatever you want to call it uh, to establish such conclusions actually support these implications. I don't think Carnap would disagree. This is a genuine question answered, I believe, in the negative. It's not a metaphysical question, however, but a question of physics. This example indicates one source of unclarity, however, in the internal-external distinction. The first-order claim that someone is a witch not only presupposes, in order to have the significance that such claims are supposed to have, that witches have certain causal powers. Claims about what witches cause or have caused are presumably part of the first-order theory of witches itself. So it would seem that such causal claims are internal claims. What I've been, what I've been treating as external in this case is not those claims, but the question of whether the methods of reasoning that I'm supposing the first-order theory of witches takes to be sufficient to establish that someone is a witch actually support the, the conclusion that that person has these causal powers. 
I call these questions external because they concern the adequacy of the methods that are constitutive of the domain itself. Physics itself and our everyday understanding of physical reality may employ notions that require further explanation, explanation of a kind that may properly count as external in one sense. For example, there are questions about how the ideas of cause and of, law of na- and of a law of nature are to be understood. Insofar as these are questions that cannot be answered by science itself, they aren't going to be answered in the library, or, sorry, or the laboratory, sorry, maybe the library, not the laboratory, because they concern the content and significance of scientific conclusions. If this is true, then they would count as external in the sense I have in mind. They arise from a first order, they arise from, this is going back to my phrase earlier, the important questions of, of ontology or, or external questions arise from a first order inquiry. They're raised by it, but can't be answered satisfactorily within it. That's what makes them external. Perhaps there are similar questions about whether physical objects endure or perdure. I'm not denying that questions of this sort make sense nor am I claiming that they are shallow or that they are not theoretical questions but rather practical ones. So I'm not saying any any of these things about most of the claims that would normally be counted as metaphysical or ontological. Morality, too, has presuppositions. Talk about moral right and wrong presupposes that there are moral standards that everyone has good reason to take seriously as guides to conduct, and as standards for objecting to what others do. But the ordinary ways of understanding morality do not make clear what these reasons are. And there is therefore an external question, external to morality as we commonly understand it, whether there are such reasons, whether the usual ways of establishing that a form of conduct is wrong also guarantee that there are good reasons not to engage in that form of conduct and what what those reasons are. This question is not metaphysical or scientific, but normative, I would say, hence practical in one sense of that term. It's a question about what we have reason to do. But I don't think it's practical in the sense that Carnap had in mind if what he meant was a question about whether it would be useful to adopt a certain framework. Although not all external questions are, in my view, practical questions, There is a sense in which all such questions are driven by concerns that might be called practical in a broad sense. There are questions about what is required in order for the methods we commonly use for reaching conclusions in a given domain to have the significance that they claim or that we commonly give them. They thus depend on our concerns for these domains, our reasons for engaging in them and taking their conclusions seriously, practical questions in a broad sense. One objection to the view I've been advancing is that the priority it gives to what I've called first-order domains is arbitrary and unmotivated. I've specified these domains simply by a list of examples, natural science, mathematics, moral and practical reasoning, and so on. I called them first-order simply to distinguish the modes of thinking they involve from higher-order questions, questions that are higher-order because they are questions about those domains and the methods they employ. But what makes a set of questions and a way of resolving them first order? What gets, what gets a domain into the game to begin with? I've rejected the Carnapian idea that these ways of thinking are enshrined in linguistic rules. And it would clearly be inadequate to say that these have the, state, the status they do simply because they're the modes of thought that we are currently employing. So why just these familiar domains and not others? In particular, why not a first-order domain of metaphysics or ontology, which is concerned with the scope and nature of our overall ontological commitments, the commitments of all our other domains? If, as I've said, a first-order domain such as witch theory may be rejected because its implications or presuppositions conflict with the first-order domain of natural science, Why shouldn't other domains, such as morality, be open to possible limitation or rejection when they conflict with our best metaphysics, understood as a first-order discipline? My answer to this question is the one suggested by what I said above about the possibility of an isolated domain with ontological commitments, but no implications or presuppositions that conflicted with those of other domains. The question about such a domain, I said, was whether we have reason to be concerned with the conclusions it delivers. Similarly, the question about an autonomous first-order domain of ontology is, in my mind, whether we have reason to be concerned with the questions it addresses and the answers it yields. 
As I said, there are many metaphysical and ontological questions that I think we do have reason to be concerned with. For example, those that arise out of our ordinary talk about the physical world and the, the science that is continuous with it. But our universe of discourse is a purely formal notion, not a world, let alone the world. And our only reasons for being concerned with what this formal universe contains, I think, are ones that arise from the particular domains that contribute to it. I don't see that we have any domain-independent reason to be concerned with how many things are quantified over in all of our first-order domains taken together, or to be concerned with whether these things are abstract or concrete. The view I'm defending, I think, helps to make sense of the place of indispensability arguments, such as the idea that we should accept ontological commitment to numbers insofar as numbers are indispensable for the practice of science. Such arguments are often given quite a lot of credence, even by people who, who don't want to be committed to these entities. Hartree Field, for example, uh, went to a great deal of trouble in an excellent and sophisticated book to show that ontological commitment to numbers is not actually needed for science. This wouldn't have been necessary unless indispensability had some serious weight. But the idea that indispensability, in this sense, has ontological implications seems odd, uh, as I've already remarked in commenting on Quine's later views about sets. Does existence really depend upon what is useful for us? The existence of physical objects doesn't seem to me to depend on our interests or our practical or intellectual needs to solve problems. And I don't see how the existence of abstract objects could do so either. The view I'm advancing suggests a different way of looking at this question. On this view, the existence of numbers and sets is determined by mathematical criteria. Assuming that these criteria are coherent and sufficiently determinate, there's no further question about whether these entities exist, no question beyond the question that's settled by applying those methods. What the indispensability of mathematics for science does is to give us one kind of reason to be concerned with mathematics, and in particular to be concerned with whether there exist numbers of particular kinds. So it gives rise to a concern with the domain rather than, rather than making it the case that the things that that domain quantifies over are ones that we should be committed to. I said earlier that I did not believe that the problems raised by moral facts or by irreducibly normative truths more generally are properly described as ontological. The insignificance that I'm alleging here of the perfectly general idea of ontological commitment provides one reason for saying this. Another reason for saying it is that contrary to what's sometimes said, belief in irreducibly normative truths doesn't involve commitment to any particular entities. The essential element in a normative statement is not a term referring to an entity, but, as I understand it, a relation the relation that holds between a proposition, a set of conditions, and an action or attitude when P is a reason for a person in that situation to do or hold A. formulation of the basic normative relation is intended to be non-committal on important normative issues. It's consistent, for example, with the view that the reasons an agent has depend on his or her desires, because it leaves open whether C contains facts about the agent's desires. One view might be, you know, P is, is a reason for somebody to do A if, if a person in situation C, if being in situation C involved having a desire that would be uh, that, that, and P makes it the case that doing A would satisfy that would satisfy that desire. Also, the fact that the relation R contains no distinct place for the agent him or herself may seem to entail a commitment to the view that all reasons are general, that something is a reason for an agent only in virtue of certain facts about his or her situation, which could be true of others as well, and is a reason for that agent only if it's also a reason for any other agent in similar circumstances. This is indeed my view, but it's not entailed by the formulation I've given. The formulation allows for the possibility that the particular identity of the agent might figure, in some cases, among the conditions C, in virtue of which P is a reason for him or her to do A. 
The things denoted by the terms occupying the first position in this statement, the things that are reasons, are not some special kind of normative entity, but ordinary facts, usually facts about the natural world. So, for example, the fact that a piece of metal is sharp is a reason to use it in order to cut something, and under most conditions a reason not to press one's hand against it, unless other factors in the background, in C, give one reason to want to cut one's hand. The distinctive aspect of normative truths is thus, is thus not a matter of entities, a matter of ontological commitments, but rather a matter of what, Con, what Quine called ideology, that is, a matter of the predicates, or in this case, relations we employ, rather than the things we quantify over, at least in a first-order theory. This will not comfort many of those who have objected to the idea of irreducibly normative truth. John Mackey's famous metaphysical objection to objective moral values was not just to special entities, but also, he said, to qualities or relations, which, he said, would be of a very strange sort, different from anything else in the universe. According to Mackey, the claim that there are objective values would involve the claim that certain actions, as he said, have ought to, do, ought to be done this built into them, or that certain situations would have, quote, a demand for such and such an action somehow built into it. The claim that there are such things, Mackey said, is not just meaningless, but false. In fairness to Mackey, I should emphasize that, like most people discussing these issues at the time he was writing, he was concerned with morality, not with practical reasoning more generally. When he speaks of claims about objective values, he may intend to contrast these with claims about, what shall we say, subjective values, claims about what a person ought to do or has reason to do that, unlike moral claims, are claims that are supposed to hold only insofar as the agent, for example, has certain desires or aims. Mackey may have no objection to values or claims about reasons of this subjective kind. If so, however, this position seems to me to suffer from a certain instability. As I pointed out in the last lecture, the claim that a person has reason to do what will promote the satisfaction of his or her desires is itself a normative claim. Indeed, it's an objective normative claim, since it does not itself depend upon what people desire or on what aims they have. If there is something metaphysically odd about objective normative truths, then this supposed truth, the truth that people have reason to do what would satisfy their desires or promote their aims, is just as odd as any other. The disagreement between someone who thinks that all reasons for action depend upon the agent's desires and someone who thinks that there are some reasons, at least, that do not depend on the agent's desires is a normative disagreement, but not a metaphysical one. They're both in, they're both in, the, same, in the same boat, metaphysically speaking. So Mackey's argument from queerness, insofar as the queerness involved is metaphysical, is an argument against irreducibly normative truths of any kind, not just objective moral values. At least this is how I'm going to take his argument, I hope not unfairly. When Mackey says that there's nothing in the universe like the normative relation I've been describing, what does he mean by the universe? We should note the distinction here, parallel to the distinction I mentioned earlier between the universe, the physical universe, and the universe of discourse, that is, of things to which we are ontologically committed by all the statements that we believe and assert. <coughs> In that case, the distinction, the former case, the distinction was between two sets of objects, those that exist in the physical world and those formerly included in the universe of discourse in the broader sense. In the present case, the distinction isn't between two sets of objects but two collections of facts, let's say, those that comprise the natural world and those that are simply the reflection of all the things uh, that, that uh, are, that all, the, all the statements that we accept as true. Normative truths, such as the claim I just mentioned about sharp objects, are about the natural world in one sense. They make claims about a relation among things that are in the natural world. Facts, such as the sharpness of the metal, agents who are in certain situations, and actions that these agents might perform. Those are all, those are all natural as the day is long. When Mackey denies that natural facts have ought to be doneness built into them, he might simply be denying that this relation ever holds that facts ever provide reasons. He might be denying that, for example, the fact that the metal is sharp is ever a reason, or maybe he would say a reason independent of one's desires, not to press one's hand against it. He may indeed be denying this, 
but he seems not simply to be denying this first-order normative claim. Rather, he seems to be claiming that such first-order claims are false because, understood as irreducibly normative claims, they have presuppositions that cannot be endorsed. They are external commitments in my sense. Specifically, such claims are false because the relation R itself, he says, is not a property in the world, doesn't correspond or name such a property, and the fact that it holds of certain facts and actions is not a fact in the world. Well, if by the world one means the natural world of physical objects and causal relations which science aims to describe, then there is no disagreement. Those of us who believe in irreducibly normative truths would not claim that the normative relation R itself is part of the natural world. That is, that to claim that it holds is to make a claim about natural facts. Indeed, we explicitly deny this. That's where the idea of irreducibly normative comes in. Um, Normative facts about reasons, as we understand them, are part of the world only in the broader sense in which the world is simply the reflection of all true sentences. Normative claims, as we understand them, are thus incompatible with a scientific view of the world only if, in addition to holding that everything in the natural world can be explained by science, such a scientific view holds that nothing other than this world can be the subject of true statements. As I've said earlier, science doesn't seem to me to entail this. It's perhaps worth noting that some contemporary philosophers who are not realists or cognitivists about the normative accept that normative statements may state truths about the world in this broader sense. Alan Gibbard, for example, uh, writes uh, that if by facts we mean simply true thoughts, then there are normative facts. If there is no more to claiming that it's true that pain is bad, Gibbard says, than to claim that pain is bad, the fact that pain is bad just consists in pains being bad. And to believe that pain is bad is just to accept that it is. If all this is so, Gibbard says, then it's true that pain is bad, and it's a fact that pain is bad. Similarly, Simon Blackburn writes, there is no harm in saying that ethical predicates refer to properties when such properties are merely the semantic shadows of the fact that they function as predicates. I myself believe that normative statements can be true, can be facts in this minimal sense, and that this is all we need. But questions remain, and would be disputed to some degree by the people I just mentioned, about how this can be so. In addition to the questions which I'll address in later lectures about how we could know such truths and about the practical significance of normative beliefs, if they are beliefs, there are questions about how normative truths, even in this minimal sense, are related to natural facts, that is, facts about the physical world. To address these, to discuss how the normative is related to the non-normative, I need to begin by saying something about the notorious fact-value distinction. I've said that the characteristic element in normative judgments is this relation that I've written on the board. P is a reason for a person in situation C to do A. But P cannot be a reason for somebody to do something unless it is the case that P the fact that the metal is sharp can't be a reason not to press your hand against it unless the metal is really sharp. So it would seem to follow that the non-normative claim that P is not the case, uh, sorry, sorry, it seems to follow from the non-normative claim that P is not the case, that P is false, that the normative claim RPCA is also false. And this might seem to be a case of inferring a normative conclusion, the falsity of RPCA, from a purely non-normative premise, namely the, neg- the, the falsity of P. The essential normative content of the relation R, however, would seem to be independent of whether the, the, whether the natural, uh, state, natural prop- propositions that make it up, that, that enter into its argument places, are true. The, nat- the, the essential normative content of R lies in the claim that whether P is the case or not, if P were the case, it would be a reason for someone in C to do A, if there were such a person in, 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 in C. So I will understand R in this subjunctive form and take what I call a pure normative claim to be a claim of the form RPCA, where R is understood in this way, that is, as, absurd, as asserting what I think of here as the residual normative content of such a claim, the claim about the, the normative relation that holds uh, between or would hold between P, C, and A uh, were P and C to be actually true.
Now, it may seem, anyway, I, 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 I'm, that, that's a digression. I'm going to avoid a digression because otherwise I'm going to run out of, run out of time. So I will pl- press on. What it, what it may seem will no doubt emerge in discussion. As a first step, I will take the thesis of the autonomy, autonomy of the normative from the naturalistic to be the thesis that no pure normative claim, no instance of RPCA as I've just described it, is entailed by any combination of claims of a natural kind, for example, claims about purely physical and psychological facts. Given any combination of naturalistic claims, it's a further claim that some pure normative claim is true. Now, most of what we commonly think of as normative claims are not what I've just here called pure normative claims, but rather mixed normative claims. They involve pure normative claims, but also make or presuppose claims about natural facts. P is a reason for X to do A, as normally asserted, is a mixed claim, since it can't be true as normally it would normally be understood unless P is true. And it also, may, it also presupposes that there are some conditions, C, such that the pure normative claim RPCA is true, and the person X who was just asserted to have her, for, who, of whom it was asserted that P was a reason for him or her to do A, is in those circumstances. The idea that there is a logical gap between normative and non-normative claims seems puzzling because we commonly make what seem to me sound inferences from non-normative facts to normative conclusions. There seems to be a gap on the one hand, but on the other hand, we leap over it with alacrity many times a day. For example, consider the statement, if Jones does not leave the burning building now, he will be killed. It would seem to follow from this that Jones has reason to leave the burning building now. But if there's a logical gap between the normative and the non-normative, how can we we leap over the gap, as I said, with such ease? The answer, I think, is that the gap consists in a failure of logical entailment. And the second of the two sentences, that Jones has reason to leave the burning building now, is not logically entailed by the first. That is, that if he doesn't leave the burning building now, um, he he will be killed. Rather, the second seems obviously to follow from the first because we take it to be obvious that Jones's situation is such that the fact that doing A is necessary for him to avoid dying now for any A is a reason for him to do A. That is, he's in conditions under which he has reason to do what would preserve his life. This is still a mixed normative claim since it involves a claim about what Jones's situation actually is. But we could put these, put these assumptions about Jones's actual condition into the, these conditions C, whatever they are, these facts about Jones's life in virtue of which he has reason to want to go on living, into the earlier premises in the argument. We could say, if Jones's life is of such and such a character, and he, if he doesn't leave the burning building now, he will be killed, then it seems he has reason to leave uh, the burning building now. There would still be, there would still be the same uh, gap represented by the pure normative claim that if someone's life is of that character and the person is in these circumstances and leaving the burning building is the only way to uh, avoid being killed right away, then he has reason uh, to leave the building. Since in order to get from non-normative claims to some normative claim, we need to make a claim about reasons, Such a move will in general, as in this particular case, depend upon some pure normative claim or claims. It's therefore unsurprising that one can't get from any conjunction of non-normative premises to a normative conclusion without, as they say, already making some normative claim. This reflects no infirmity or problem about the status of normative claims. It's a reflection simply of the kind of thing that pure normative claims are. What pure normative claims do is to assign normative significance to particular non-normative claims. The distance between, sorry, sorry, the distinction between normative and non-normative claims is most likely to seem like a gap, which it is difficult to get across if we focus on mixed normative claims, such as the second one in my example, that Jones uh, has reason uh, to leave the building now. In such claims the relational character of of pure normative claims is not apparent. The same is true of other normative claims that are often mentioned in this context, such as claims that something is good or is morally wrong. These claims appear simply to assign to their subject some normative property, ought to be doneness, goodness, rightness, wrongness, and so on. 
And the gap seems to be a gap between having this normative property, this, this one-place normative predicate applied to it, and having various natural properties, on the other hand. The relation between normative and non-norm the, the relation between the normative and the non-normative becomes clearer, I think, when we focus instead on pure normative claims, which have exactly the function of assigning normative significance to the non-normative. This assignment of significance, this relational character, is just what any move across the supposed gap involves. So it shouldn't be surprising that one cannot make the move without, as they say, already making a normative claim. Pure normative claims, these relational claims, when abstracted from their empirical presuppositions, uh, are not entailed by non-normative claims. But it's widely agreed that the normative, nonetheless, as they say, supervenes on the non-normative. It was to answer this question that I took you through this little discourse about pure normative claims and so on. I hope you'll, in a minute, think that it was worthwhile or at least interestingly misleading, as opposed to just a waste of time. Um, supervenience has two aspects. First, there in the vicinity, there are two aspects. Normative facts can depend upon certain non-normative facts. They vary when these non-normative facts vary, even though they are not entailed by them. Second, normative facts are fixed by the non-normative facts. They can't vary when the non-normative facts do not vary. It's been held to be a problem for views that allow for the existence of irreducibly normative truths to explain why such truths should be related to non-normative truths in these ways. This phenomenon might be seen as a kind of metaphysical necessity. The metaphysical impossibility of a world, for example, that is like ours in its non-normative respects, but in which different normative facts obtain. But this isn't quite an accurate or a complete description of the phenomenon in question, as I understand it. The necessity involved in the supervenience of the normative on the non-normative is at least one side, in, in one aspect of it, not metaphysical, but normative. To understand the phenomenon of supervenience, it's important to be clear what kind of normative claims we are talking about when we are asking the question of how they are related to non-normative claims. The normative facts that vary as, as the normative facts which vary as non-normative facts vary are facts that consist in the truth of, of mixed normative claims, such as the claim that someone has a reason to do a certain action or that a particular consideration is a reason for him to do that action, as in my example of leaving the building. In order for some fact to be a reason, as I've said, it has to be a fact. And even if it is a fact, its being a reason may depend on other facts. It may depend on what goes into C there. So, for example, the fact that it would be very painful to put my hand into a flame is a reason not to put my hand into the flame. But if putting one's hand into a flame was not painful or harmful, then the fact that it would be very painful to put my hand into a flame would not be a fact, and I would not have the reason just mentioned. So whether I have the reason depends upon what the non-normative facts are. So normative facts depend upon non-normative ones, and which facts they depend on is a normative matter. It's a normative matter specified by normative facts which consist in the truth of what I'm calling pure normative claims. The truth of pure normative claims, by contrast, does not itself depend upon or co-vary with non-normative facts. There's nothing for, there's nothing for it to, to, to depend upon. That's, where their purity, that's what their purity consists in. The further question is whether the truth of pure normative claims, even though it doesn't co-vary with, doesn't co-vary with, with, with non-normative claims, uh, whether it can vary nonetheless on its own not as a result of variation in other facts on which it depends. The answer, I think, is that the truth of pure normative claims doesn't vary in this way, and the fact that it doesn't, the fact that these claims are not in this way contingent, is again a normative matter, not a metaphysical one. Perhaps putting one's hand into a flame might not have been painful or harmful. If so, then the fact that I have reason not to put my hand into a flame is also contingent. I would not have had such a reason if putting him, my hand into the flame were neither harmful nor painful. But the fact that if putting my hand into the flame would be painful, this would be a reason for me not to do so, is not something that might have been otherwise. 
I confess that I don't know how to argue for this claim. It seems to me evident from reflection on what basic normative truths are like. But it does not seem to me, on reflection, to be a claim that we should find puzzling. Pure normative truths... uh, Pure normative truths are not contingent in the most obvious way. That is, they're not dependent on contingent facts about the natural world. Given that they are not contingent in this way, why should we expect them to be contingent in some further sense? Given the minimal nature of my claims of truth for normative assertions, it may be asked how much my view really differs from expressivist views, for example. I mean, I mean because my, my idea of what it is for these things to be facts is just very thin. Actually, I've skipped over a part in this paper where I talk about normative facts as opposed to normative concepts. Right? My, my argument about, about um, the fact-value distinction had to do basically with the autonomy of normative claims and hence with the autonomy of, of, autonomy, autonomy, sorry, of the normative concepts that give those claims their content. It might be said that there have to be further, there's a further question about what normative properties are like. I myself think there isn't a problem about that, but time doesn't allow this. It will be in the complete version, which is on the web, or people can ask about it in the, in the question period. But given that I'm interpreting the, the matter in this way, it may seem that my view doesn't really differ all that much uh, from uh, non-cognitivist views, such as Gibbard's uh, or, or Blackburn's. Um, Both Gibbard and Blackburn allow, as I've said, or even embrace the idea that normative claims can be true in this very minimal sense. And like them, I'm claiming that normative judgments are are judgments about our reactions to the natural world rather than about that world itself. Or more exactly, in my case, there are claims about the appropriateness of these reactions. So it may seem that little difference between the two positions remains. As a challenge to my view, this would be the correlate to challenges that have been made to Blackburn, for example, that his quasi-realism collapses into a kind of realism. Despite these appearances, however, I think important differences remain. These differences have to do with the way in which the practical significance of normative commitments is explained, with the way in which interpersonal advice and disagreement about normative questions is interpreted, and with the sense in which the correctness of our normative commitments is independent of those commitments themselves. I will discuss these matters in my next lecture. Thank you very much.